We'll now hear argument in case 10-179, Stern versus Marshall. Mr. Richland. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Pierce Marshall filed a claim in Vicki Marshall's bankruptcy case. He alleged he was damaged because she falsely accused him of cheating her out of money that her late husband intended to give her. In order to preserve its claim against him, the bankruptcy estate had no choice but then to file its counterclaim in the bankruptcy court, alleging that those statements were in fact true and that far from Pierce uh, being entitled to money from the estate, he owed money to the bankruptcy estate. This Court's case has established that the bankruptcy court was constitutionally authorized to decide that entire dispute. Congress drafted the bankruptcy statutes. Excuse me, Your Honor, I'm sorry. What's the authority at all for a bankruptcy court to adjudicate proof of claims? Um, without violating Article Three, I don't think we've ever had a case that's actually said that. This Court has never approached that issue uh, directly. Of so course, what, excuse so me. what's the constitutional basis? Well, of course, it need not reach that issue in this case, because the Court below and the respondents assume, for the purposes of this case, that, in fact, there was authority for the bank. I'm not sure how that helps. If there is no jurisdiction for the bankruptcy court to adjudicate proof of claims, then how can it adjudicate counterclaims? But don't both fall if there's an Article Three violation? Uh, well, I don't think so, Your Honor, because Article Three, of course, is not jurisdictional in the sense that we think of, of basic fundamental jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction. It can be waived, of course. But beyond that, uh, I think that Marathon, as I said, assumes that there is a, a Article Three authority to adjudicate the proof of claim. So answer, Catching, well, catch answer the question. Don't assume. Okay. And, well, the, the answer is that under, under uh, the various uh, uh, theories that this Court has put forth, there is a basis for, for the bankruptcy court to adjudicate a proof of claim. One theory, of course, is the public rights theory. And in Grand Financiera, this Court uh, established that the, the public rights theory uh, was broader than just the kind of situation where the government was uh, a party. And it said that, um, that it, the public rights are defined as whether Congress, acting under Article I, has created a seemingly private right that is so closely integrated into a public regulatory scheme as to be a matter appropriate for agency resolution with limited involvement by the Article Judiciary. The claim here was not one that was created by Congress, though, was it? That's, that's correct. But this Court has never held that, in fact, the claim had to be created by — literally created by Congress. What this Court has always talked about is, is, is the claim one that Congress has established as being applicable within the system, but that may be based on a state law claim? Um, for example, uh, when, uh, you know, this Court analyzed the claims which were uh, uh, at issue in Grand Financiera, it looked at the fact that they were fundamentally common law claims. It didn't depend on the fact that they were federal claims. Um, the same thing was, is uh, true in the way that, the, uh, that this Court analyzed uh, the, the claim in, in uh, Marathon itself. It made the determination that because this was, I think, the the way uh, um, Justice Rehnquist stated it was, this is the stuff that would have been uh, adjudicated at common law in Westminster in 1789. So it was not the federal or state nature of the claim. It was the fact that these were common law claims that made it important. Are there any limits, Mr. Richland? Suppose that Congress had authorized bankruptcy courts to decide contract disputes between two creditors in a bankruptcy proceeding. Would that be all right? Um, I, I think that there are limits, and they must be related to the purpose of bankruptcy. I think that a, 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 that sort of, of thing would be related to, perhaps, within the related to jurisdiction of bankruptcy, and that would fall within the problems uh, identified in Grand Financiera, for example. That would be beyond the scope 
of what could be adjudicated in bankruptcy. But what we are talking about here is uh, claims and counterclaims that are at the essence of what bankruptcy courts do. The bankruptcy system, of course, is set up in order to adjudicate claims to a limited amount of money. And in order to do that in an efficient manner, in a manner that will not utilize the entire amount of the, of the, the estate in the adjudication process, it's set up the bankruptcy courts. And so they are set up in order to be efficient, effective. And as soon as, of course, as we get an Article III court involved, that really does place some brakes on the efficiency. It it becomes much more costly. Um, Can the bankruptcy court adjudicate permissive counterclaims? And if you posit a no, what's the limiting principle? Well, certainly the statute, 157b32, does not distinguish between compulsory and permissive counterclaims. And it's also true that this Court's authority in uh, Grand Financiera, in Langenkamp, and in Katchen, uh, the rationale of those cases is broad enough to encompass permissive counterclaims. But this Court need not reach that issue in this case, because here we do have what both the Court of Appeals below and what seems to have been conceded by respondents is indeed a compulsory counterclaim. Mr. Richland, isn't there um, this difference? Just take ordinary civil procedure. Compulsory counterclaim doesn't have to satisfy any jurisdictional requirements because it comes in under the wing of the main claim. But a permissive counterclaim has to independently satisfy jurisdictional requirements. So that could be a reason, even though the bankruptcy code just says counterclaim, to distinguish the two. If there's authority to deal with the claim, then there's authority to deal with the counterclaim. But if it's a permissive counterclaim, it's not based on the same transaction or occurrence, uh, then it would have to be a self-standing claim. But as as you have said, this case does present what the parties have agreed is a compulsory counterclaim. Well, I, I think that pr- that is an excellent justification for why one might want to make this a very narrow determination in this case. And, uh, in fact, Justice Rehnquist, in his concurring opinion in Marathon, said that in, this is an area which is very touchy and difficult and complex, and it is one where we particularly should not, uh, as a court, go beyond uh, the facts of the individual case and what must be decided for this case. Of course, the other thing about compulsory counterclaims and what makes it uh, um, more uh, applicable in this kind of situation in an Article III uh, setting is that, um, uh, according to the Shore analysis, what we're talking about is how much of an intrusion on the Article III process are we talking about? And if we assume, as appears to have been assumed here, that the claim itself may be determined by the bankruptcy court, then the net intrusion by determining a, a counterclaim, a compulsory counterclaim, is much, much smaller, because there almost inevitably will be overlap between what must be decided by the bankruptcy court and what, uh, on the claim and what must be set aside. Is there any authority? This began as a motion for, for non-dischargeability. Um, is there, is there any, are there any cases in the, uh, in the federal courts which tell us that a motion for non-dischargeability does or does not uh, require uh, the pleading of a counterclaim? Um, I don't believe so, uh, Justice Kennedy, but in fact what happened here was something much, much more than just a, mo- a motion, a request for a determination of non-dischargeability, because one month after that was filed, the actual proof of claim itself was filed, and all the courts below have uniformly concluded that when that additional step is taken, it could have no purpose other than to present the claim beyond just the question of dischargeability, pre- present the question of liquidation of the claim to the bankruptcy court. And the counterclaim came at what point? After the proof of claim was filed? That is correct. Some weeks after the proof of claim was filed, the, uh, the, the counterclaim was filed. The objections and counterclaim was filed. Um, the, the statutory structure here is something that it has been suggested that this is a question of statutory interpretation and that, in fact, the statute does not provide for this kind of treatment, that, in fact, there is a two-step process 
by which one determines whether a bankruptcy court can finally decide a counterclaim. Um, but I think that really is belied by the plain language of the statute as well as the statutory structure. Um, of course, the starting point is uh, 157B2C, which very clearly and straightforwardly states that uh, core claims include counterclaims by the estate against persons filing claims against the estate. What do you make of the fact that that uh, B2 says core proceedings include but are not limited to the matters that are listed after that? How would a court go about deciding whether something that is not specifically mentioned constitutes a core proceeding, except by looking back to B1, which is what the Court of Appeals did? Well, I think that one — that a court would indeed, if one were looking at something that was outside the scope of the explicitly mentioned categories from B to N in 157B2, one would, in fact, look beyond the words of A and O — those are the two catch-all provisions — and one would look to the usual, normal uh, principles of statutory construction to determine fit, what fit within them. But 152 157B2C is very straightforward. It does not require any additional interpretation. There is a counterclaim against a person filing a proof of claim is just on its face something that is unambiguous. And the fact that there are more ambiguous categories there would probably require a court to go beyond, uh, you know, the four corners of the statute and look to the normal kinds of principles we use in determining what statutes mean. We'd look at the categories that were actually included. We would see, is this something that is similar? Does it fall within that category? Uh, and so on. Um, what do you think is the principle that uh, <coughs> defines a core proceeding. Um, some of these specifically enumerated uh, items are very — potentially very broad. A, matters concerning the administration of the estate. That's right. The, the A and O are very broad. And so what that, that category — what those two categories would have to be informed by and are informed by are the principles of statutory construction that are normally used. Um, and included among those, we would contend, would be looking at the words of the statute that talk about this arise under the bankruptcy code or arise in a bankruptcy case. So for those particular categories, the lower courts have been comfortable with the idea that we look at the language of the statute, apply those words, and use those as limitations. But with respect to the specific categories, from B to N, the courts have uniformly indicated that those categories do not require further interpretation, that they are straightforward, and they constitute core proceedings on their face. Um, I think the — with respect to the question that you asked uh, Justice Sotomayor and the whole issue of whether a matter is uh, — uh, under — may pass muster under Article Three is a very easy one in this case. And the reason for that is that if we look to Shore and Shore's Article Three analysis, we can see that it really divides into two parts. Part one is, was there some — is, is the, the Article Three to the extent the Article Three right is a personal one, that is, to the extent that it guarantees someone a, a, a decision-maker who is not going to be affected by the political branches of the government or by the winds of politics, that's something that's waivable. Um, and in fact — Say you waive it when, when in order to protect uh, yourself on, uh, for a debt that is owed to you, you, you make a claim in a bankruptcy proceeding. We, we do have a doctrine that, that you, you cannot uh, — uh, you, you, you cannot condition uh, a federal right upon the waiver of constitutional protections. And that seems to me what you're saying here. If, if you want to get paid by the bankrupt estate, you have to waive your, your right to, uh, to a jury trial. Well, Justice Scalia, that is precisely what this Court addressed 
in footnote 14 in Grand Financiera, and it explained that, yes, waiver under many circumstances, and under the Shore case, for example, waiver involves a choice between two equal or optional options. Um, however, I should point out, in this case, there was another option. There was a dischargeability complaint filed. And, in fact, the choice was made not to pursue that, but instead to pursue the proof of claim. There was already a State Court suit on file. And instead of requesting uh, a stay, uh, a relief from the bankruptcy stay, the proof of claim was filed. In general, however, the Alexander versus Hillman principle, which is also discussed in footnote 14, is what applies in this, in this circuit. Uh, would, would it have been normal for the bankruptcy judge to uh, lift the stay with respect to a claim that could be presented in the bankruptcy proceeding? Well, the, the, certainly the, uh, the uh, principles of, uh, of uh, permissive abstention, for example, encourage if, in fact, comedy is to be respected and if there is another suit pending elsewhere, that bankruptcy courts will permit the suit to uh, proceed in that jurisdiction. So that, that does, uh, in fact, occur. But it was never even tried here, and that's, that's really the point. And I'd like to reserve the rest of my time, but I would like to make the one final point before I sit down initially, and that is if this Court should decide to reverse that as we requested in our, in our reply brief and as we requested in our relief and our cross-appeal, we would request that, the, that this case be sent back to the district court, because it was the district court that in the first instance applied the improper standard. Um, and we think that that would be an appropriate way of, of taking care of this case in this instance. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> and may, may it please the Court, I, I'd like to begin by addressing Justice Scalia's question about the, what's sometimes referred to as the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, whether it's appropriate to uh, place a person in a position where he has to make a choice whether to assert one of two constitutional rights. And although there is in many contexts reluctance to put an individual to that choice, uh, there's not an inflexible rule against it. And to take one example, a criminal defendant has an absolute constitutional right to testify in his own defense. He also has an absolute constitutional right to resist compelled testimony in which the prosecution will ask him hostile questions. But he doesn't have a constitutional right to do both. If he chooses to, t chooses to take the stand and testify, he may be cross-examined at trial by the prosecution, and he has no residual Fifth Amendment right to resist the hostile this is a little It's a little different when you're talking about the uh, right to have a, a decision before an Article III tribunal. Well, it seems a bit more fundamental uh, than the examples you're giving. Well, I, I don't know that it's more fundamental than the right not to be questioned against one's will in a criminal proceeding. In well, not, fun, not fundamental in the sense of, you know, is it important or not? I guess that's, fundamental is not the right word, maybe structural or, or something like that. It's sort of the, the whole basis for the decision that's going to be made. Well, I guess there are two potential objections to the use of a non-Article III judge, and, and one of them would be, as you say, structural. That is, one of the objections that are sometimes made to the use of non-Article III adjudicators is that if Congress can parcel out part of the work of the judiciary to other units, the, the uh, stature of the judicial branch will be diminished. I, I think this particular statute doesn't create that risk because the use of bankruptcy judges is entirely under the control of the district judges. That is, the district court decides whether to refer a bankruptcy case to the bankruptcy judge. The district court can withdraw the referral with respect to particular proceedings. Well, that just means that the district courts acting in concert with Congress take action that undermines the long-term institutional and constitutional basis of the judiciary. And the district courts have very different reasons and incentives to do that. That doesn't mean that uh, all bets are off. And just because they're involved in the process, it's not a concern. Well, to the extent that the concern is with fairness to individual litigants, that is, the idea that the respondent in this case has a right to an Article Three tribunal and should not likely be held to have waived it, I think that in 
person who seeks affirmative relief from a court doesn't waive all his constitutional rights, to be sure, but should ordinarily be taken to accept the consequences that ordinarily follow from a request for judicial relief. And as a matter of history and tradition, one of the consequences that follows from the assertion of an affirmative claim is subjection to counterclaims, and especially uh, compulsory counterclaims. And well, they, that can't be right. I mean, you, 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 you can take all sorts of, uh, of matters that belong in Article Three courts, and so long as you place them in some other tribunal where somebody uh, is coerced into coming in, uh, supposedly voluntarily, it's all okay. I mean, I, that's, that's not uh, an adequate protection. Well, the Court has applied this basic principle in a number of contexts. That is, in McElrath versus United States, which is cited in the petitioner's brief, the plaintiff filed suit against the United States in the, the Court of Claims. And the United States then asserted counterclaims against him, and the original plaintiff said that he had an, a right to jury trial under the Seventh Well, but that's because there's a basic sovereign immunity. The government doesn't have to be sued at all. The government doesn't so it have can, to. So it can make conditions, but that's not this case. Well, the, the government can make conditions, but, but the point was the plaintiff in that situation had no alternative forum to which he could attempt to obtain a recovery uh, from the government. But that's because of a limitation of sovereign immunity, and you don't, and you don't have that analog here. Uh, another example would be Adam versus Sanger, which is also cited in the petitioner's brief, in which I believe it was a Texas plaintiff filed suit in the California state courts, and the California defendant asserted a, a cross-complaint, basically a counterclaim against him, and the Texas plaintiff objected to the California court's assertion of personal jurisdiction. And this, this court said, by seeking affirmative relief from the California court, you have subjected yourself to the jurisdiction of that court for all purposes for which justice requires. And it said the state can make that the price it pays for seeking affirmative judicial relief in its courts. Now, it yeah, may yeah, have the state can do that, but can the federal government make it the price that you pay for, 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 for going into a non-Article three tribunal? Wait, it's let, a different situation, it seems. Well, let, let me step back a second and address uh, the questions that were posed by Justices Sotomayor and Alito at, at the beginning about the initial authority of the bankruptcy judge to adjudicate the, the claim brought against the estate, because I, I agree with my colleague's answer that this is a question, and with Justice Sotomayor, that this is a question that this Court hasn't squarely resolved. Now, it's true that the initial — the state law claim, the defamation claim that was made the basis for the claim against the estate — was a state law cause of action. But as this Court said in Katchen versus Landy, the effect of the commencement of the bankruptcy case is to uh, uh, convert the claimant's potential legal claim against the defendant into an equitable claim against the estate. And, and respondents' equitable claim against the estate, seeking a share of the assets, was a claim created by federal law. That is, it's true that in the course of deciding whether respondent was ultimately entitled to a share of the estate, the bankruptcy court would have been required to uh, adjudicate state law questions and conduct something like the same proceedings that could have arisen in a state case. But actually obtaining a share of the bankruptcy estate requires more than that there be a valid debt. The whole point of bankruptcy is to deal with situations in which the debtor doesn't have enough assets to go around, and so the bankruptcy court will have to not only determine whether a valid debt exists, but what are the relative priorities of various creditors, what is the uh, appropriate prorated share for a particular claimant, and, and all of that is to be resolved under federal law. So when respondent filed a proof of claim in the bankruptcy, case, it was asserting a federal right cognizable under the bankruptcy code. And, and again, none of, the contact, none of the analogs that I've identified are precisely analogous to this one, but I think it's noteworthy that respondent cites no contrary authority from this court. That is, respondent cites no case in which a claimant has invoked the authority of a particular court and has asked for affirmative relief, and this Court has held that it nevertheless had a constitutional entitlement to be free of counterclaims. And that seems particularly true of compulsory counterclaims, both because they are counterclaims that our legal system affirmatively encourages to be brought within the same proceeding, and for the reason that Justice Ginsburg said, that in an analogous area of the law, when we ask whether there is 
Federal Court jurisdiction over a counterclaim to begin with. If the counterclaim is compulsory, there need be no independent basis for jurisdiction. I'd like to address quickly the statutory question, and the relevant provisions begin at page 1A of the government's brief. Would you include in that um, this 157B5, because this whole thing would be a futile exercise if the tort claim uh, comes, comes out of the bankruptcy judges? Well, I, th- I think the 157B5 is, in our view, not jurisdictional. It deals with the, the respective authorities of the bankruptcy judge and the district court within the bankruptcy case. But it doesn't go to the question of what the, the federal courts can adjudicate. And the limitations on bankruptcy court authority are waivable and subject to consent. The Court of Appeals did not address the personal injury uh, aspect of the case. There is a, a lively dispute between the parties as to whether that objection to bankruptcy court adjudication was properly preserved, and that would be open to the Court of Appeals on remand if this Court were to reverse. Uh, on page 1A. But Mr. Stewart, do you think that we should resolve the constitutional question if there is some significant possibility that it wouldn't be necessary because the claims would be found to fit into B-5? I, I think, yes, I mean, th- this could have been a prudential factor that might have persuaded the Court not to grant certiorari in the first instance. But the Court has obviously identified this as an issue that warrants the expenditure uh, of its resources. And we think that the case, there is no jurisdictional impediment to a decision in this case. Does the government have a position on what the answer would be? We remanded it because that's an open question. But does the government have a position on whether these kinds of claims would have to be heard by an Article III judge? Uh, again, we, we don't have a position with respect to the defamation claim. That is, defamation claims may be personal injury claims in many contexts, but in this statute it's linked with wrongful death, which seems to, to cut the other way. The, the actual counterclaim was uh, not a defamation claim. It was a tortious interference claim, and we don't think that would be a personal injury claim. With respect to B-1, it says bankruptcy uh, — I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Engler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are three possible grounds for affirmance of the Ninth Circuit in this case, one constitutional and two statutory. And the 157B5 ground, which was preserved below, received some discussion at the very end of Mr. Stewart's argument. But I'd like to start the meat of my argument just the way Mr. Stewart started his argument, which is by addressing Justice Scalia's question. And like Mr. Richland, I'd like to talk about footnote 14 of the Grand Financiera opinion. Now, Grand Financiera had to distinguish Shore which is the only case in which this Court has ever said a state law claim uh, could be a public right so that uh, it could be adjudicated by a non-Article III forum and not subject to the Seventh Amendment. And Shore rested on a consent and waiver rationale and on a structural rationale that an alternative Article III forum was made available by Congress for everyone in Mr. Shore's position. In distinguishing Shore, this Court said in footnote 14, parallel reasoning is unavailable in the context of bankruptcy proceedings because creditors lack an alternative forum to the bankruptcy court in which to pursue their claims. So with respect, this Court has already answered the question Justice Scalia posed by saying a debt creditor may not be put to that choice. Now, Counselor, opi- that sort of begs the question, because I think what um, — have an unpackaged, and I want you to unpackage it with me. You're obviously not deprived of a state or federal trial forum to decide your claim. What you're, de- what you're deprived of, you can get your judgment. Um, no one's telling you you can't go to those courts and get a declaration of your rights. What you're being told is you can't get paid on it. But that happens all of the time. Um, either by the vagrancies of the fact that a debtor goes bankrupt and doesn't file in the bankruptcy court or does file and there's been a discharge. Um, What you haven't said to me is what entitles you outside of equity 
And what stops either a state court or a federal a state legislature or a congressional legislature from saying, when someone is in bankruptcy, this is the rest, and these are the people who are entitled to it. It's a separate claim. It's not the state law claim. It may be measured by state law entitlement, but it's a separate claim. Why isn't it just a separate claim? Okay. Justice Sotomayor, in attempting to answer your question, I'd like to distinguish sharply between a claim of the creditor against the race. But that's what you have to become to make that claim, meaning you would need to adjudicate your state law entitlement. You get a judgment saying she defamed you. Then what do you do with that judgment? Oh, that, that judgment then is covered by the priority scheme of federal bankruptcy laws, which are passed pursuant to congressional authority, constitutional authority, in Article I, Section 8, Clause 4, which is why, in answer to the question Your Honor asked first of Mr. Richland, uh, although the Court has never squarely addressed it, it's broadly accepted that there is no problem with adjudicating what would otherwise be state law claims by the creditor against the debtor in bankruptcy. It's an entirely different subject when the debtor tries to bring a claim against the creditor. That's what Marathon addressed. That's what Grand Financiera addressed. That's what Catch and V. Landy addressed. Now, in Catch and V. Landy, the Court said the case turned on, or largely turned on, the proposition that Congress had prescribed that the counterclaim, the preference avoidance counterclaim uh, created by Act of Congress, must be adjudicated before the main claim against the race and against the debtor could or couldn't be disallowed. And the Court returned to that theme in footnote 14 of Grand Financiera, saying, as Katchen makes clear, however, by submitting a claim against the bankruptcy estate, creditors subject themselves to the Court's equitable power to disallow those claims. So to the — That's my problem, which is, if Congress could do that, why can't it do what it did here, which is to say — if you want to make an equitable claim against the estate, it's not going to be in the amount of your judgment because they're in bankruptcy because they can't pay your judgment. If you want a piece of this, you have to consent to all claims, all compulsory claims, let's not try to get into the compulsory permissive category, to be adjudicated. Otherwise, like with preferences, there's an unfairness that um, makes this unequitable. You're asking the estate to give you something, but you're not willing to submit an equity to deciding whether there's something you should give the estate back. And, um, and compulsorily. I mean, you know, not what I'm trying to take the permissive issue out. Sure. And, and the answer I really do submit is footnote 14 of Grand Financiera pointing out that there's nowhere else to go for a creditor in bankruptcy, which distinguishes bankruptcy from Shore in particular, but from all the other settings in which uh, the Court has said that by submitting a claim, you subject yourself to the jurisdiction for all purposes. Every, every bankruptcy priority rule extinguishes someone's entitlement to money. The security rules means the people with secured interests get paid before unsecured people get paid, and there are insider rules. Um, equity as in terms of how the bankruptcy sets up the rest is at the vagrancies of the legislature. Exactly. They choose what they're going to permit you to take under what circumstances. So why is it inequitable to to force you, not to to force you, we'll use that word, to say if you want money from the rest, what you trade off is letting the debtor sue you for what you owe? Well, I don't know if it's inequitable, but it's certainly unconstitutional. And the reason it's unconstitutional is because — You don't have a constitutional right to collect your debt. You have a constitutional right to have your claim adjudicated by a court. With respect — You can go to a state — well, once you get the stay lifted at the end of the discharge, you can sue the estate. You may not get a judgment that you can collect after that. With respect to the claim of the creditor against the debtor and against the race, I have no problem with that analysis. When the debtor, instead of saying the race is limited 
and it can only be distributed so far, instead says, I get to bring my counterclaim against the creditor in a non-Article III forum, and the non-Article III forum gets to hear it and determine it, not just hear, as 157C1 says for certain types of claims, then I suggest there is a constitutional problem, at least with respect to claims that neither, as in Catch and V. Landy, require rejection of the main claim, nor, as in Catch and V. Landy, are governed by federal statute. This is a state common law action for a tort, which has importance for 157B5, which has importance for 157B2, and which has extremely high importance for the constitutional question. In Marathon, as everyone here knows, there was no majority opinion. But one point very much in common between the plurality and the concurrence of then-Justice Rehnquist was that it mattered a great deal that it was a common law claim under state law. Here we have a common law — Without a proof of claim. Yes. There was no proof of claim in Marathon. So this case presents a different issue than Marathon does. But it does present categorically the same kinds of issues presented in uh, Katchen, Langenkamp, and Shore. The only one of those cases that allowed a state common law claim to go forward, a state common law counterclaim to go forward, was Shore. And the Court, as Mr. Richland correctly said, divided its opinion into a part dealing with the personal rights conferred by Article III, Section 1, and the structural rights protected by Article III, Section 1. In the part about personal rights, the Court held Mr. Shore had waived his personal right to an Article III forum. In the part about structural rights, at page 855 of that opinion, the Court said that it mattered to the constitutional analysis that Congress had made an Article III forum available for pursuit of that claim. So it is terribly, terribly important whether an Article III forum is available. When one is forced into a non-Article III forum, as Pierce Marshall was, if he wanted to have any opportunity to collect from the race, saying that he thereby in some meaningful way consents and saying that the structural purposes of Article III are not implicated is not in line with this Court's cases. Something you just said about if he had any opportunity. I thought his position was this is a non-dischargeable debt, even if it's a discharge in bankruptcy. This debt would survive. That's correct. So it wouldn't be wiped out. I mean, he would. Oh, Justice Ginsburg, I'm sorry. He would have another forum. He would have another forum against her post-bankruptcy assets after she had her bankrupt, her pre-bankruptcy assets distributed. So it's a it's a different kind of opportunity to recover from a different set of assets. If he wanted to have any shot at any of her pre-bankruptcy assets, he did have to file a proof of claim and not just a non-dischargeability complaint. And let me clear up one very minor aspect of the record while I'm talking about the proof of claim and the non-dischargeability complaint. I doubt this ends up mattering to the Court's decision, but Mr. Richland misspoke slightly when he said the counterclaim came weeks after the proof of claim. The proof of claim was June 12th. The counterclaim was June 14th. And in its very first paragraph, it says it is a counterclaim to the non-dischargeability complaint. It doesn't purport to be a counterclaim to the proof of claim. I doubt this ends up mattering, but it might be important for this single purpose. It is inconceivable that this was a compulsory counterclaim to the non-dischargeability complaint. It might have been a compulsory counterclaim to the proof of claim, but not to the non-dischargeability complaint. Now, I've explained why — Just one more point about the non-dischargeability. He didn't have to bring that claim, did he? I mean, if if it's a non-dischargeable debt, he doesn't have have to have the bankruptcy judge confirm that it's a non-dischargeability debt. Um, Given — I haven't studied closely the interaction between the automatic stay of Section 362 and the non-dischargeability complaint of Section 523, so I'm not 100 percent sure my answer to Your Honor is correct. But I believe that's not correct. I believe that in order to preserve the argument that something is non-dischargeable, one does have to go to the bankruptcy court under Section 523 and seek a determination of non-dischargeability. Now, the the two statutory arguments are before the Court, and I'd like to say something briefly about each of those two statutory arguments. With regard to 157b2, you have heard Mr. Richland say this afternoon that the lower courts limit subparagraphs A and O uh, with the language arising in and arising under. You've heard Mr. Richland say 157B2C, subparagraph C, doesn't need to be so limited because it's so straightforward. 
But the point is not how straightforward it is. The point is how broad and constitutionally dubious it is. And if the canon of constitutional avoidance means anything in limiting the scope of 157b2, it should have just as much application to C as it does to A and O. And the it, it is not as analytically neat as some other cases of statutory interpretation. But the most obvious way, if one is going to limit the reach of C as well as A and O to do so, is to take the words arising in and arising under, just as Mr. Richland concedes they are used in uh, limiting A and O. The alternative is to treat those words as surplusage, and the alternative is to run headlong into the constitutional issues. Okay. Can you go back to that for one second? I, I understand the due process issue which is Brandeis's issue in Crowell. I think I can — you're not going to say anything that's, that I can't read uh, in the brief on that. But the other one's worrying me, the structural issue. So imagine there's no due process concern whatsoever. Now, when I looked at Crowell, your case would seem to fall right in it. It is uh, an adjudication uh, under the law as such, you know, between two people, whatever that famous line is. You're, you're, you're captured by that one. So the question is, can you get out of it with later cases? And you point to Shore to get out of it. And Short, as I read it, is an all-factors case. That when she talks in the structural part of uh, — about — when Justice O'Connor is talking about the non-due process part, the structural part, just what you said, that there isn't a hard and fast rule, that there are a bunch of, of uh, factors that we should look at. At least that's how I read it. And you were reading it as a hard and fast rule, which means you win. Now, now, who's — should I just read this case further and make up my mind about that, or is there something you well, want to say about it? No, Justice Breyer, I think I can agree with most or all of your premises and still argue that we should win under the proper constitutional analysis. The mm-hmm. point is not that the opinion of the Court in Shore said in so many words that the availability of an alternative Article Three forum is dispositive. The point is it has to be dispositive, given the larger sweep of this Court's cases, because otherwise uh, it is simply an all-factors test governing a structural provision of the Constitution. Well, yeah, that's what she says. And, and the, what you're interested in there, the key thing is not fairness. The key thing is maintaining the integrity of the judicial system. And Crowell, Justice Hughes, says you've made that integrity as long as there were a review of matters of fact, the independent decision by a court of questions of law, and reservation to the court of constitutional facts which have never been heard of since. Okay? So we have this case, and your issue is, after all, something that for many, many decades or longer has been the subject of a bankruptcy proceeding. The bankruptcy judge is an adjunct to the court. It is well-established, this kind of review. Every part of Crowell is met. So what is, inter- in- what is essential to the integrity of the judicial process that requires you to have a de novo hearing before a district court rather than the kind of review that's given here? Well, um, those, with respect, Your Honor, I believe are the arguments that were rejected in Marathon. In which case? In Marathon, in Northern Pipeline v. Marathon. Well, Marathon, you know, you had 4-4, four, four and, and who knows what it stands for, and then we have a sentence of what it stands for. And if you read that one sentence, I don't think you can say it's slam-dunk for you. Well, I, I'm not saying Marathon makes this case a slam-dunk for me, Justice Breyer. I am saying Marathon rejects many, if not all, of the premises of your question starting uh, of the Of Marathon, you're and saying where four and four judges really reject a decision like Crowell, which is a kind of foundation stone? Of no, I'm, I'm suggesting that they reject one particular interpretation of Crowell, a very broad interpretation of Crowell. Of course, Crowell involved public rights in the, in the narrow sense, didn't it? It was a, it was a, a, a public suit. Correct. True. And, 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 but it's, and, it's and also — Perhaps a, there should be different uh, standards, even if you do not agree with my separate opinion in God Financiera that that should be the only category, uh, there may well be different standards for public suits in the narrow sense that were, were involved in Crowell and public suits which uh, are, are governed by some totality of the circumstances test. Which I, I agree with that. Excuse me, Justice Scalia. I do agree with that, and I think one doesn't have to 
adopt the reasoning of the concurrence in the judgment in Grand Financiera to come to that conclusion. I think Part 4 of Grand Financiera itself supports that proposition. But I also think, returning to Justice Breyer's question, I do think Marathon does stand for certain propositions that this Court has accepted in later cases and that, and that do suggest that Kroll is not to be read broadly and that some of the limitations on Kroll are the ones suggested in Justice Scalia's questions. The, 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 the thing that the concurrence — the two justice concurrence in Marathon agreed with the plurality on was that what was fundamental to the disposition of that case was that the claim by the uh, debtor against the creditor was the stuff of common law at Westminster in 1789. It was a state law claim, not by the creditor against the debtor, but by the debtor against the creditor. Because there was no uh, bankruptcy court handle to start with. There was no Claim. And if you're going to go back to equity, equity lays hold of a claim that fits within the equity court, and then, you know, there were clean-up and clear-up doctrines so they could decide the whole case. So I think the, the one thing one can say about Marathon is that when the debtor has a claim against the creditor, and the creditor hasn't made any claim in the bankruptcy, you can't drag that into the bankruptcy court. But once the bankruptcy court has authority over the claim, the creditor's claim against the debtor, then the court can clear up the whole matter. If all we were talking about, Justice Ginsburg, were doctrines of equity, then perhaps Alexander V. Hillman would be the governing precedent, a non-constitutional case later cited in a Seventh Amendment case and now attempted to be imported into an Article III case. But I do respectfully suggest that the Constitution places tighter limits on the authority of non-Article III tribunals to adjudicate counterclaims than the, just the general and very permissive rules that allowed equity courts to adjudicate counterclaims Without it, Alexander V. Hillman was a case about old equity rule 30 and whether it superseded section 51 of the judicial code and its venue provisions and personal jurisdiction provisions. If all we were talking about were equity, that would be a fine analysis. But I do read uh, the collection of this Court's cases, including the crucial decisions in Katchen and Langenkamp, which involved federal counterclaims that by statute defeated the main claim, and Shore which I do believe relied heavily on the consent theory and on the availability of an Article III forum, I do read that collection of cases to suggest that there are tighter limits on assigning state law claims and state law counterclaims to non-Article III tribunals. Counsel, by your theory, you're basically saying that Congress cannot delegate any state law-based claim to which a jury is entitled to the bankruptcy call counterclaim at all. So if you have a claim by lawyers for their fees and a defense of malpractice, maybe they can adjudicate that, but they can't adjudicate the malpractice claim. It would be a counterclaim. I, I am saying that, Your Honor, but let me say for a moment why that's not inefficient, why that's not such a surprising proposition. Remember, the bankruptcy court can hear all of these claims unless they're covered by 157b-5. It just can't determine them. So the only thing we're talking about is the standard of review. And with respect, it's not a surprising proposition that the requirement of an Article III forum does require that the district court, the Article III court, decide those claims. So, so the breadth, my position is as broad as Your Honor's question suggests, but the implications are not quite as broad as Mr. Richland suggested when he said that an Article III forum always brings in inefficiency. I'm Mr. Englert, sure. one real difference between Marathon in this case is that Congress passed legislation in between which brought the bankruptcy judges under the control of the district courts and made them entirely Article III entities. So you can look at a case like Marathon, I mean, not you know, uh, supervised by Article III entities, not by the President, not by Congress. So one can look at a case like Marathon and say the problem there was that the President uh, uh, appointed the bankruptcy judges in a way that the President no longer does, and that the district courts did not have the supervisory control over the bankruptcy judges in the way that they do now, and that that makes a constitutional difference. I, I, I would respectfully subject, suggest, 
not, Justice Kagan, because there remains a difference between a non-Article III court and an Article III court. And the degree of supervision does not convert the non-Article III court into an Article III court. It simply means that we've gotten to this non-Article III forum in a way that gives slightly tighter control to the judiciary. But as a whole line of cases, including uh, uh, Crowley Benson, suggests, the degree of substantive review of individual decisions by non-Article III tribunals matters. It's not just the front end at which the judges or commissioners or whatever they are of the non-Article III tribunal are selected. It's also the back end at which the Article III forum is either really making the Article III decisions or giving deferential review to the decisions of a non-Article I court. So I, I do think the problem is not solved simply by a different method of appointment of, of bankruptcy courts. Now, if I may, I'd like to spend a few minutes on Section 157b-5. It was interesting to me that Mr. Stewart said the government had Would no — Would you just clarify one point, Mr. Englund? As I understand it, uh, before the code was amended, when the federal courts were operating under the interim rule, it was standard that the bankruptcy judges given a, a claim against the estate routinely dealt with counterclaims. Isn't that what the practice was when the interim rule was in effect? Um, I, I believe the answer is yes, Justice Ginsburg. I can concede that point. But there was, uh, I believe, de novo review in district court. And in any event, the interim rules were in effect for a very short time as the arc of constitutional decision-making goes. Marathon was decided in 1982. Congress passed new legislation in 1984, and it took quite some time for the interim rules to be put into effect. Did all of those Court of Appeals cases uh, involve uh, Article III claims? Did they pass upon the Article III contention? If not, it's, it's our clear law that uh, uh, questions, uh, jurisdictional questions that aren't raised and discussed uh, are not decided for uh, precedential purposes. Well, how, many, how many of those cases uh, uh, grappled with the Article Three question? I, I don't have a case count for you, Justice Scalia. Some did. I must concede that some did, but, but certainly not all did. But, but not most. I not, not most, and they were only uh, decisions of, of lower courts, not of this court. Now, on the personal injury tort provision in Section 157b5, which, by the way, is also repeated in 157b2b and in 157b2o to give emphasis to the fact that Congress really did not want bankruptcy judges trying personal injury tort claims, the the greatest dispute before this Court is not whether we're right about 157b5. Mr. Richland in his, in his reply brief says we're not right, but I leave the Court to assess those arguments. And Mr. Uh, Stewart takes no position. The greatest dispute is whether that issue was preserved for review. And I want to suggest to this Court that it was clearly preserved for review. In the proof of claim filed on June 12, 1996, Mr. Marshall, Pierce Marshall, checked the box indicating that he was filing a personal injury tort claim. So from literally the first document, that brought, potentially brought this issue before the bankruptcy court, it was noted that it was a personal injury tort claim. Twenty-seven months passed before he moved to withdraw the reference. That's true. What's not true is that anything had happened on the defamation claim during those 27 months. And what's not true is that any court below held that delay against Pierce Marshall. If you look at pages 109 to 112 of the joint appendix filed in this court, you will see that the timeliness of the motion to withdraw the reference was actually discussed in the motion itself. That's a matter easily accessible to this Court. Judge Keller granted the motion to withdraw the reference. He said, Pierce Marshall, you're right. Then he reversed himself. And you can find his ruling reversing himself at pages 138 to 139 of the Joint Appendix filed in this Court. But he did not reverse himself on timeliness grounds. Our respectful submission is that by granting the motion and then reversing on other grounds, he clearly accepted its timeliness. In any event, the issue was clearly raised in the bankruptcy court and in the district court. Excuse me. I just couldn't hear. On what grounds did he reverse himself, do you think? He concluded that the bankruptcy court actually did have authority to hear the claim and the counterclaim on the merits. If, if we were to decide this case, then 
uh, suppose we decide every other question and suppose you lost, then wouldn't we send it back for you, if you're right on that, for the Ninth Circuit to decide about that as an independent basis for no jurisdiction? Given the premise that I've lost every other issue, the Court could either — I had to make that premise in order to — No, I, I understand. I understand. But given the premise, the Court could either then reach an alternative ground for affirmance, which is well within the ordinary operation of this Court's rules, or send it back. But let me suggest that there is a reason, and I believe uh, a, a, a question from a member of the bench earlier suggested there might be a reason to reach the 157b-5 issue. And to put it colloquially and directly, the 157b-5 issue is easy. The constitutional question it, it, is, is, is easy. The constitutional question is hard. If it's that hard, why don't we just dig the case? I, I guess that would be you. Yes, I understand. <laughs> no, but, but really, the 157b-5 question is, is the, the, the strongest argument, Mr. Richland makes on the merits of the 157b-5 claim is that Congress meant only bodily injury when it referred to personal injury. But Section 522d11 of the Code uses the term bodily injury. So we know that when Congress means bodily injury, it says bodily injury. It's also been suggested that the phrase personal injury or wrongful death is a phrase to which the canons of interpretation, noscitura socis, aestum generis, should somehow apply. That's not why Congress used personal injury or wrongful death. Until 1846, uh, with Lord Campbell's Act, the common law of England was that a wrongful death claim didn't survive, couldn't be brought by the, by the heirs because the victim of the tort was dead. It is quite common all around the country to use the phrase personal injury or wrongful death to make clear that the tort being covered is a tort that resulted in injury to someone who survived or is a tort that resulted in death. So there's nothing surprising about the use of that phrase. It doesn't mean bodily injury. And for those who look at legislative history, there is legislative history indicating quite emphatically that the members of Congress who were responsible for adding 157b-5, amending 157b-2b, amending 157b-o, and putting the abstention provisions in Section 1334c really meant for bankruptcy judges to keep their hands off personal injury claims. The uh, main claim in this case that conceivably could have given the bankruptcy court jurisdiction, if I lose with the other issues, uh, was Pierce's defamation claim, not Vicky's intentional interference claim. We re respectfully suggest they're both personal injury tort claims, but it's particularly clear that Pierce's defamation claim is an injury to his personal interest in reputation. So either by resolving the constitutional issue or through the canon of, of constitutional avoidance or simply because it is the best reading of 157b2, this Court should affirm the Ninth Circuit. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Richland, you have three minutes remaining. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, let me address immediately this question of um, whether Judge Keller effectively denied this, um, this withdrawal motion on timeliness grounds or not, because that truly is the easy way of resolving this personal injury question. The substantive question of whether these particular torts fall within the personal injury exception is a most difficult one, and it is one that this Court really shouldn't take on unless there's a substantial amount more of briefing and input from, from others. But the waiver issue is an easy one, and the reason it's an easy one is the record is undisputed that it was 27 months between the time that this claim, counterclaim was, uh, claim was filed and between the time that this personal injury issue was raised in a withdrawal motion. During that period of time, there were numerous uh, uh, sanctions motions and numerous sanctions, uh, discovery sanctions imposed upon Pierce Marshall. And, in fact, what happened was Judge Keller, before considering the initial withdrawal motion on the merits, before having a hearing on it, he initially granted the withdrawal. He then had a hearing. And at the hearing, what he said was — he may not have used the word timeliness, but what he said was, you've chosen this forum, the bankruptcy court is immersed in this case, and he used the colorful phrase, what you are experiencing here is the spawn of what you have be got. And I think that that clearly imports the notion that you are too late. You have not brought this in a timely fashion. Everything that has happened in the bankruptcy court has made it too late for you to come to this court. Well, I would take that to mean uh, um, you, you brought it in here and, uh, uh, you know, this the same kind of argument that you were making. And that Valenti you — non fit into your area. You chose to come into the court. 
and this is the spawn of your coming in. And the bankruptcy court is so immersed in this because of what has gone on during the bankruptcy proceedings that it is not appropriate for me to withdraw it. That seems to connote clearly the notion that it is not timely. I would — well, I would rather say 27 months is too long. That's — And that's — That's timely. Uh, well, 27 months is a long time in bankruptcy. Um, let me clear up this issue of whether the counterclaim was to the proof of claim or to the dischargeability. Uh, on the uh, appendix to the petition, page 379, uh, it is quite clearly stated that it was in response to 157B2C. That is a counterclaim to a person who has filed a claim. On, with respect to this issue of state law having some great significance here as opposed to federal law, that issue has been rejected by this Court. Um, in the Shore case, the majority opinion states very clearly that, in fact, there is no significance to the fact that, that something is a state law claim as opposed to a federal claim. Well, but his basic argument, I think, is that in Marathon, Fair is — make it totally fair. Nobody's being treated unfairly. Structurally, it does injure the, the prestige or something or the structure of the integrity of the federal government, judiciary, federal judiciary, to allow the bankruptcy judge to adjudicate a direct claim. Why is a counterclaim different? Well, I understand that argument, but uh, the majority opinion ensures states that the state law character of a claim, quote, has no talismanic power in Article Three inquiries. That's 478 at 853. Thank you, Thank Council. You. Council, the case is submitted.